Welcome to Be Customer-Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer-led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill Stagos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Be Customer Led. This is your host, Bill Stakos. I am so pumped for this week's guest, not only because I'm a bit of a self-proclaimed wine snob. Uh, now you guys know something about me. But also, our guest today has an amazing role. Joe Fish is the CEO of Wine Access, which Wirecutter has named the number one wine club in America. It is a really cool company, and I'm excited to have Joe. Joe, thanks so much for being a guest on our show. We're going to have a really cool conversation. I can't wait to get into it. Well, Bill, thanks for having me, and, and always love to talk with other wine lovers as well. So <laughs> it's going to make it even better. Absolutely. So um, we'll have to talk about actually, you know what? Why don't, before we get into it, I always ask the first question, you know, tell us about your journey. What's your favorite one? I got to ask. Oh, that's or maybe that's, what's your favorite region? I'll name two regions. Of course, I didn't answer your question exactly, but I love champagne. So like, I think there's no better way to like start or end a night than champagne. Heck and, yeah, then, man. and then Northern Rhone. I love the Northern Rhone. So. And now like, where's Northern Rhone? So places I like, like the best would probably be like Coat Roti. So it's going to be like a little bit, it's going to be south of, of Burgundy. So if you like think of a map of, of France, yeah. you like start at the top and you got champagne, then you go south to, to Burgundy and then you go a little bit farther south and then you hit the, you hit the Rhone. And then the Northern part of the Rhone is where you get mostly Syrah and big Syrah fans. So it's like cured nice. meats, black fruits, black pepper. It's like all the greatest things in the world. Nice. I asked because I have one of our biggest markets, obviously in the US, not a lot of people may know that, but obviously our listeners in France are probably like rocking on right now because they probably, they definitely know where it is. My favorite region is, is Chateauneuf de Pop. It just like, I don't like, I've had like one bad wine out of there out of like 20 years. Was lucky enough to go there and just kind of chill out and like visit some vineyards and, and enjoy some wine. But um, that's when I'm number one. Number two, though, is a small region in France called Priorat. Mm-hmm. And there's some solid, solid wines coming out of Priorat. So, anyway, all right, we digress. Let's get back onto a show. We've got an important thing to do here. So, Joe, tell us about you've got a pretty interesting background. Tell our listeners about your journey, professional, like what were the big differentiators for you and, and how did you get to wine access? Yeah, it was a bit of kind of like a accidental, I guess like an accidental story in a sense. I started my career in audit of all things. I was a like accounting major, like, you know, tying out numbers, debits and credits, just because that's kind of how I saw the world. Like when it comes to like any problem, I'm like, okay, we can quantify it, we can put it together. And that's just like how my brain starts to click. So I started at a one of the big accounting form, firms called PwC. And my very two, like my two biggest clients were uh, Jackson Family Wines, which mm. everyone knows of, of Kendall Jackson, and then Foster's Wine Estates, which is now Treasury and it has big brands like uh, Behringer and Meridian yep. and Penfolds. So I spent my summers in, in wine country and pretty early on, I was like, this is like absolutely amazing. The wines that I was also able to get, like with an employee discount, yeah. 22 year old auditor, not making that much money. <laughs> I got addicted to like the good life pretty, pretty quickly. I yeah. remember I was drinking like 2003 Behringer Private Reserve. Wow. Uh, and I, I think I bought like 
six cases of it because I was like, this is going to cost, like if I ever get kicked off this client, I don't think I was that good. <laughs> like I'll, I'm not going to have an opportunity to buy this again. And that's like really what like initially kind of gave me the wine bug. And then from there, I moved into uh, our consulting practice, mostly doing buy side and sell side due diligence for private equity clients, but always mm. stayed in retail and consumer. And specifically, mm. I really liked food and beverage because I can understand it. Like I'm not smart enough to do software security or any SaaS company, but food and drink, I can understand. Like you buy it, you eat it, you drink it. Done. Yep. So spent some time there. And then I later moved on to Ghirardelli Chocolate Company to head up their corporate finance department. So you'll see, again, you'll see a theme. Yeah. see it, eat it, drink yeah. it. Like that's what I do. And then finally had continued to try to look, how do I get back into wine or how do I get into wine somehow? I didn't necessarily want to work at a winery per se, because mm -hmm. I want to be able to touch multiple different products, like all over the world, as many products as you could with a winery, you might be only talking about like, you know, a couple of different SKUs. And then you're talking how the, you know, the new vintage each year. And that's when wine access came in and, and my predecessor brought me in to to be the VP of finance and have the finance group. Mm -hmm. And then about a year or so later, stepped into the CEO role. So awesome. Uh, definitely did not have aspirations of leading a company, but sometimes you fall into it. Yeah. I mean, if you're given that opportunity, you know, tough to say no to that one too, right? And what a cool, so tell us a little bit about Wine Access and what you and, and the team are doing. Obviously we've had a chance to connect, but, and I've had a chance to be, to check out Wine Access since we last talked as well. Tell our listeners a little bit about like what, what the organization is, where do you guys focus? Because it, it is pretty awesome the way, some of the things that you guys are doing too. Yeah, absolutely. So we really see ourselves as the premier online wine platform to providing absolutely amazing wines that, that punch above their weight. And we will offer things from you know, as low as that $15 value wine to the $1,500 you know, first growth Bordeaux, the Lafitte's mm. of the world and kind of everything in between. But, but no matter what we offer, we always, we always stand behind everything that we have. So when we think about the pillars of wine access, when you as a consumer are coming in as a customer saying, okay, I want X, Y, and Z wine, there's four kind of pillars or ways that we go about it. So the first is curation, have an absolutely amazing team, uh, master of wine on, on the team, mm -hmm. one of I think 430 in the world. Master Psalm on the team, again, similar numbers, one of yep. you know, 420 in the world. Uh, foremost Saki expert, he ran Global Bev for Morimoto. I mean, we're yeah. talking about like heavy hitters. Yeah, these, like, yeah. these <laughs> are like, real deal people. They're real deal, dedicated their lives to the craft. I mean, they know every single wine kind of inside and out. So they're, they're going all over the world and, and working with different wineries, different suppliers to make sure that they're bringing the best wines on, on a, a quality to price ratio. Mm for our consumers. So that's the curation aspect of it. Then there's the content piece. So every wine that we put out, we have a 500 to 1000 word narrative describing the people behind the wine, the yeah. place. Like why is this relevant to? Like what normally there's a fun story that comes with it. Yeah. And that's the content piece. I mean, in addition to that, we have our own podcast as well. We're trying to figure out different touch points that we can have for the customer. So that like that's always near and dear to us. So I always say that that's another one of those pillars. Perfect provenance, so always making sure the wine is perfect when we send it to you. So the same way that we taste it in the chateau, we want it to taste like that when you're in your house. That will include including ice packs, monitoring weather, so the wine's not compromised from the delivery of our distribution center all the way to your home. And then mm -hmm. lastly, amazing customer service. So always ensuring that you know what we, we track NPS religiously. So 
our net promoter score ever dips below 80, I don't want to say we freak out, but we say, all right, what went wrong with this and how can we kind of continue to bring that up? So those, those are kind of the four pillars of the how we do it and then offering wines on a daily basis, whether it's through email marketing, through a traditional kind of e-commerce mm-hmm. storefront, or as you'd kind of mentioned before about being New York Times uh, Wirecutter's best uh, wine club through our club itself. And we have a couple of kind of cool club offerings as well. I want, so one, I love that you kind of center around these four pillars. You mentioned sort of the, the MPS score of 80 plus. Now, how did you guys settle on that? Was that, were you in the seat already and you guys were already looking at MPS? Like, why did the business, I always ask this question just because I'm a geek about this stuff and I've been in the, in the CX space for a long time. Like, why did you guys choose MPS versus something else? Like, was it something about sort of the recommendation given the business you're in, like the you know, propensity recommender? Was there something else in there? And like, how do you guys kind of treat it internally? Yeah, I think what we found, especially in wine, and I think in a lot of products itself, but especially in wine, because it's such a confusing place. And, and mm. if you think about how a lot of people get into wine, it tends to be recommendations from friends. Because you go, you, you go to a grocery store, let's just pretend like you're very early in your wine journey, you go to a grocery yeah. store, and you see, all right, this bottle says Burgundy, it's red. Like, I don't know what that is. Like, maybe it's Pinot Noir, maybe it's something else. So I think you end up relying on your network of friends, and hopefully you have one that's kind of the, the wine expert. And I think we yeah. all end up having one of those. Yeah. So the recommendation standpoint, I think, especially for wine and, and for most consumer products, is super, super important. Two, like, it's an easier thing. It's kind of an easy question in, in a sense. It's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty straightforward. Like, would you recommend it or isn't? Because I think, yeah. especially from a data integrity standpoint, if you have an open-ended question and you're trying to like quantify it, yeah. That's like can be pretty tough and you can kind of manipulate the data however yeah. you want to. With this, it's like you either did your job or you didn't. So it's kind of a low level of effort too to accumulate the data. Mm-hmm. We're always looking at kind of different things. I think there's one that we were looking at. It was like how hard, I can't remember the name of it. It's like basically how hard do you make your customers work to get yeah, to customer effort. Yeah. Yeah, customer effort. So I think there's things like that that we're evaluating. I mean, I'd love to hear what are the different ones that, that you've seen that you use? Because we're always interested in saying like, okay, like NPS has been around for a long time. We also don't want to become like the dinosaur of metrics when there's yeah. 15 other things we actually should be looking at. So I'd always love to hear, you know, what, yeah. what you see. Uh, I, I appreciate you asking. Look, I love NPS. Uh, there's a lot of people that poo-poo the score. I, we've had Fred Reichold on the show. He's, he actually started NPS uh, while I've been over 20 years ago. I think for in a retail context, especially in your type of business, I think it's like a great question to ask. Because even if your effort is high on the website or whatever, you're not going to recommend, right? Like you're, you might even say, hey, I was on WineAxe's website. Like, you know, they were recommended by, you know, Wirecutter, New York Times. Like, and I went there and I just didn't have a great experience. Like, they'll talk about that. Those people are detractors, right? So I like it, you know, but at the end of the day, like I always tell people, you know, don't get hung up on the metric, get hung up on like what you're doing with it. And it sounds like, you know, you guys are actually doing something about it, like internally as well. If it, if it falls for whatever reason, you're not, you know, you're an operation at the end of the day, you can't be a hundred percent every time. Mm-hmm. It's about what you do with someone giving you like a one or a zero on that scale at the end of the day. And it's not so much about, Hey, our numbers up, you know, up or down. That's always been my counsel, but I mm-hmm. love that you guys are using it. I, in your business, I would always say this is probably the metric that you guys should be using. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, good to hear we're on the on the right track. And yeah, I mean, we'll hear comments or say, hey, I think your prices were too high. So it may be in Q3 of 
of 2021, I think it was Q3 2021, we saw more complaints about pricing being high and we made sure to adjust that. It was still like, again, when you're an 80, it's very few people who are yeah. doing it. But that being said, we're still trying to optimize for that last, you know, that last, whatever it would have been, very few yeah. contractors, like 5% yeah. or something yeah. like that. Or it could be like time from whether it's shipment to hitting my door or the personalization was off. So we can each month, we can basically look and often say, okay, this is where we're off. These are where the comments were coming in. It wasn't just like recommend or not, but we can see like very specific categories yeah. and that will help kind of guide uh, guide us and course correct. So how do you guys mobilize as a company? Like when you do get that rating, by the way, I do wonder like with not only the fires out West, you know, this past year or, or two years ago, I guess, and as well as sort of like supply chain issues, I'm hearing like the tw- like there's basically nothing for 2022. Like it's not going to come out next year. It might be a shortage of wine. I don't know if you guys are seeing that or hearing that too, but you know, that might impact your scores at the end of the day. How do, but how do you guys like mobilize? Can you give us an example of like how you mobilize if someone isn't having a good experience and do you engage that customer directly? Do you guys look at your processes and say, did, you know, where can we improve? Like, like, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it depends on like where it's coming in and whether it's a prolonged trend or whether we think it was just like a simple, mm. like simple spike. We, anyone who reaches out and is essentially a detractor or, or if they rate a wine low, uh, if they have a low rated wine, our customer service team will reach out to them directly. Like we want to get more feedback from it. Cause I think sometimes you could say, Hey, the time lag from when I ordered to when I got the wine was not quick enough. There could be a couple of interpretations of that. It could have been, okay, was this a carrier delay? And it was beyond our, <laughs> it was beyond our control. Was it because the customer ordered a pre-arrival wine and they didn't notice it was a pre-arrival, right. which then means like that right there, you have two very distinct, like different paths that you go. One is, hey, we're going to be working with our logistics provider. And one would might be, we need to actually change our website and be more clear that this is a pre-arrival. So I think yeah. it's really kind of dissecting where does this actually land? Is this indicative of a bigger problem or is this a smaller blip? And then from there, you know, mobile, we're not a very big team. <laughs> we have, I think, 35 of us. So then figuring out, okay, quickly, like, what are the resources that we want to put yeah. against this? This is something that like one person can knock out real quick and gets fixed in the next dev release. Or is this something where we need to say, we need to rework this process because we're seeing that in Florida for things that we put on a line haul truck, it's not getting there in a quick enough fashion, we need to be looking at kind of two day air options or, or things like yeah. that. And again, that got a little bit granular, but like, it's important, like for us, when you're dealing at the consumer level, you kind of have to have to do that. I think, look, that really differentiates you guys. My guess is, I'm going to ballpark this, right? But, you know, probably 60% of the companies out there that actually track NPS as a metric, don't do anything with it. So like right off the bat, you guys are in the minority because you're actually doing something with it. Like you're not just following a metric and reporting it, right? You're actually saying, we want to understand like what's happening for our business, what's happening for our customers, and you guys are driving change. Joe, you mentioned personalization before. Like, how do you guys think about that? Because particularly in in a direct consumer kind of business, right? Like personalization is so key. So how do you and, and one, I love the stories. I was kind of perusing a lot. I was actually perusing Pirates and 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 Chateauneufs, but how do you guys think about personalization in your business and what are some of the ways that you guys try and drive it? Yeah. So from a order and like and consumption standpoint. We've been I, probably in the last like year or two, we've been like really starting to focus on it. it's really hard for wine 
because I think there's so many different dynamics to it because a, a wine can have a different kind of flavor, uh, mouthfeel profile. And then there, like, to be honest, there is like a, there is a marketing aspect of Mm -hmm. it. I think that like, there are pieces where people like, like expensive wine tastes better because people paid more money for expensive wine. We try to help show that, Hey, there's different values out there that you can get. And we think this, if you're this cab drinker, we think you should try this, you know, this sort of wine. But all that being said, the more data that we get from people rating wines or looking at wines or having an affinity towards certain wines will help determine how do we push it into, how do we push it to different segments? So if you have an affinity for Verdicchio, we may say, well, you should also try X, Y, and Z wine. Cause we knew that, you know, this buyer of, of Verdicchio actually really loves, I mean, it could be, you know, super Tuscans, or it could be something that's like from a completely different country. So we're pretty early on in our personalization and we're just kind of continuing to refine it. And it can be different weights where we'll weight it 80% based off of ratings, 20% off of what you're looking at. And I think there's going to be a, hopefully a next step where when we profile each wine, if we profile wine, you're consistently rating wines that have, you know, four out of four on fruit. There's probably like a high likelihood that you're not going to like delicate white wines. You may, yeah. Yeah. but I think there's, I think there's those aspects as we start to really get into the guts of the wine. But right now it's, it, it's pretty much done at like a price varietal level based off of your affinity for wines that you have purchased in the past. That's cool. I mean, like that makes sense right at the end of the day. When you think about sort of when, and I was checking out the site, like what really I find fascinating, particularly for subscription businesses more than some others is this kind of like this thing around self-serve and giving sort of the, the customer a little bit more control over their destiny on some level, right? How do you guys think about, or how, even as like a CEO, like how do you think about giving customers control, whether that's self-serving, not just in a, from a purchase or buying experience, but also maybe from a, from a service or customer service experience. Like, How do you guys think about that and kind of bring that into wine access? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've always loved about, about our customer service team is like they're very accessible. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why we have such a high NPS score. So yeah, I think there's always this balance in determining, okay, what are the different kind of product features that, that, mm-hmm. we, that we want to launch? We've most of our customers right now have said, we really want a lot more control in the account center for selecting the wines that we like, for personalization, for receiving updates. So from NPS scores or from comments, those will help also kind of dictate our, our, our product roadmap. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there are certain things that are going to be best practices that we know that we want to potentially put in front. So we use that for, from our customers to dictate and to tell us, like, what do you really, like, what's most important for you? And I can say like, right now, we hear all the time, like, I just, I want simple access to like, when is my wine getting delivered? And you like from UPS, so like all this other stuff, like if it's canceling a wine club or switching it, you guys are so fast when we write in that like, that's not a big deal for us, but actually being able to track orders is a big deal. So I think those are the, there's always a million things that you can add to your product, <laughs> to your product roadmap. And, and we adjust them kind of as we see the data come in and tell us where, where, where customers, like what they really want. Yeah. So that like trade-offs is so critical. And I mean, as CEO, I'm sure like you're, you're making a lot of trade-offs for the organization, or at least you're kind of, you know, calling trade-offs um, and helping prioritize. And, you know, I think it's like your background f- from an audit perspective, as well as from a consulting perspective, 
really put you in a great position, but like in customer experience and the discipline broadly, there's this really big conversation around, do you kind of, you know, there's one camp that's like, just love your customers, hug them tight and the, the money will come, right? Others are like, no, 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 no. Take the discipline, the toolkit and point it to, in a direction of like driving revenue in a customer friendly way, but help it drive revenue, help it, you know, find efficiencies in the business, et cetera. How do you strike the, or how do you think about maybe that balance one, given kind of your background, you know, in audit, in finance, versus sort of like that, you know, balancing profitability and revenue from an experience versus delivering that great experience. Because sometimes delivering a great experience can be costly, right? And I've actually seen businesses run themselves into the ground, literally go bankrupt because it was like everything had to be a wow moment, right? But like, how do you think about that given from your seat? Because I think that is, that's something our listeners would really be really interested to, to learn because that kind of helps them think, okay, how do I frame the conversation with my CEO maybe? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you obviously brought up my background as well. So I think most people, you hear anyone with like an auditor background or finance background is going to tend to probably be a little bit more conservative by nature, yeah. especially from a, from a fiscal perspective. I think a marketing and, you know, I'm stereotyping a little bit, but like <laughs> a marketing CEO probably will have a different view than I will. My, yeah. my hope is no matter if you're building the right organization, you're going to have kind of a, a customer, a customer centric, obsessed with your customer sort of experience. That being said, you're going to have a hard time serving your customer if the example that you just said, you run out of money and like you end up, you're not <laughs> like you don't have a viable business model. Because I do think being like having a profitable company, like being able, like you can use that to reinvest into your employees. Yeah. If you're running, if you're running completely like, completely to the bone, like at some point, like something's going to break. It may not be like, it may not be cash, but maybe it's like your employee base or maybe yeah. it's you're beating up your suppliers so much that they don't want to work with you. So I think like, you know, it's a beautiful non-answer that I'm giving. I get it. It's just, like, it's, it is like, I feel like a lot of times it's just like juggling. It's like, okay, yeah. what ball is about to drop? And like, yeah. let's make sure if you're juggling perfectly, like everything is, you know, above the waist and you're keeping it up and but sometimes stuff gets really close to dropping and hitting to the yeah. floor you want to make sure you're not letting something fall and hit the floor because then it I, then then the cycle breaks i think there's a really important lesson there right because you know just for someone who's had to go to the ceo and talk to them about why as a, as a cx leader i would need certain investments right you really need to like you know lesson number one like know your audience right and i think your your answer actually is not a non-answer i think it's a great answer because you need to appreciate that that CEO, like the customer, even though I've never met a CEO that has never said, including yourself, like the customer is not important, but they're one of a hundred different things that they're dealing with on any given day. And you need to appreciate that context when you're going to engage that CEO to talk about sort of how do you improve the experience for your customers or even for your employees or the business for that matter. So I, I don't think it's an answer at all. I think it's actually a good, authentic, honest answer and one that I'm hoping our listeners actually take to heart and just say, okay, I'm one of X number of things. Like, how do I approach this? One, to achieve my goals as a, as a CX leader, to improve the experience, but also think about it from their perspective and how do I make this an easy decision for them, right? Mm -hmm. Relative to the hundred other things they're thinking about and juggling. So no, I think it's a great answer. All right, Joe, I ask each guest to ask a question of my next guest. I joke and say, I always say like, it's not because I'm a lazy podcaster or I, you know, I need another question. And the question said, I do it because I started this at the top of the year. And frankly, the questions that I get from guests 
I mean, one, I get to talk to a lot of smart folks like you, but the questions I get are super interesting. But there was a, a San Francisco-based founder. His question, and I'll pose it to you, is how do you, and this is a tough one, so forgive me, but how do you focus on philanthropy and giving? Is that something that, and this person actually founded a company that's focused on that. So that's, you know, he's coming from that place. How do you think about, or what's your philosophy on giving generally? And you can answer that in, the, in any context, personally, professionally, like how do you guys, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think from a wine access perspective, you know, one of the things I was really proud of that we that we ended up doing beyond just like, I think there are certain things that you do in the business world where like, oh, we're delivering amazing wine, we're growing, we have all these great partnerships. And I think that's like really easy to hang your hat on. Mm. But back in 2020, we started a diversity in wine scholarship um, with one of our partners is it NBA player Josh Hart to basically cool. figure out like, how do we bring more inclusivity into the wine space? And we're not a big company. It's not like we're going to be, it's not like we're going to be like Clorox and be able to yeah. say we're for millions and tens of millions of dollars at, at things. So we said, well, what we do really well is we're extremely connected within the Napa Valley. We are able, we're storytellers. We have an amazing wine team who are some of the most brilliant minds in the world. How can we bring in people who traditionally would not have access to the Napa Valley or, mm. or to this sort of talent and, and really help kind of promote that class or promote that, those students of wine? So what we ended up doing is in launching the scholarship, we gave a scholarship to the Wine and Spirits Education Level 1 classes. So to give wine education to 100 uh, students, or I should say, I say students, but they're over 21. Yeah. <laughs> to 100 uh, individuals, uh, persons of color, to basically get their foot in the door in wine. And then from there, we took another set and, and took them to the next level. And then we actually, yeah. for, I think it was like four students, we actually brought them to the Napa Valley, had them meet with different different components of, of the wine industry, whether it was sales and marketing, whether it was mm -hmm. production, whether it was hospitality, and putting them in front of like really impressive, putting them in front of really impressive people that they would have had it would have taken a lifetime to try to get into it. Yeah. So for us, that was like a big component of what we do. It was a very successful program. And I've always said the real measure of it is like, well, what does it look like five or 10 years from now? Yeah. Uh, because I think we, we saw a lot of companies during the, during the George Floyd incident that you know, they put the, you know, the black placard on, on Instagram and yeah. showed support there. And I said, like, we can do that. But like, what really matters is like, what does this program look like 10 years from now? Do we have... Yeah thousands of thousands of like wine enthusiasts that we have now given an opportunity and we've actually put them in the place to, to be successful. So that's where we've been really passionate about it. And we're, we're going on year two now, or I guess it'd cool. be year three. So that's how we've kind of looked at, I guess, giving, so to say, or charitable or however you want to. I it. love that, man. I love that you guys are doing that. I think, you know, anytime, any company, frankly, can actually Yes, they're, you know, showing solidarity, showing support is really important. I'm not taking anything away from that. But like, you know, once organizations decide that they are going to take action in their own way, whatever that is, but there's real action behind it to create diversity and equity in, in a certain space by, by creating sort of this, this vehicle for inclusiveness. I think that that is just awesome. All right, uh, Joe, I'm going to turn the table to you. What question do you have for my next guest? So the question that I have, I, I had it pulled up. I, and it's always like a, a two, it's like a two part <laughs> uh, question. So like, what does professional, personal and emotional support mean to you? And like, 
and what or who do you turn to for this? Very cool question. No one's ever asked that before, so I'm excited for uh, to ask my next guest. I'll give you a heads up when uh, when that gets answered and gets published. Um, yeah, I can't wait that, to see that. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, one last question before I let you go. I know you're super busy. Where do you go for inspiration? What fills up your tires? I luckily I live really close to Golden Gate Park, and I find that just turning off the phone, <laughs> taking a walk through the park, and just being around, like being around the ethos of San Francisco is the best way to go. And if I need a personal inspiration, I got my, my wife and daughter. So, so that's a pretty good one, two punch. That's awesome. Golden Gate Park is absolutely beautiful. I've had the, uh, the privilege of, uh, of being there several times. It is a, a really special place in the country, uh, and recommend it to anyone, whether they're in the U S or, or just visiting maybe. Joe, before we go, where can folks find your company? What's the website? What's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, so either so wineaccess.com or we just launched a, a new app. So in the App Store, Wine Access. So in the App Store, it's two words, wine and then access or wineaccess.com. Uh, we'll we'll cool. drive you there. Awesome. Joe, thanks so much for being on the show, man. It's been great to get to know you a little bit. And thank you for dropping some knowledge on us and giving you your perspective. I know the CEO's perspective is always something that listeners are always on me about, hey, I want more leaders in, a, in the C-suite coming on the show. And I'm, I'm grateful for you to, uh, to give us the gift of your time. For this, uh, well, this thank day. you for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a fun one. All right. All right, everybody. Another great show for you. We're out. Talk to you soon, Thanks everyone. for listening to Be Customer-Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out. We're out.